from the campus of Stanford University, this is Schools In. They believe that what we're being told is everything they need to know and they just pay attention to that. You actually have to teach the teachers how to teach for innovation. With your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, Senior Lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, Dean of the Graduate School of Education. Hello, curriculum expert, Dr. Pope. Oh, I, I this flattery will get you everywhere, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. you. What's, uh, what's happening today on our show? Uh, science, science education. Um, and so I'm going to start with one for you. Okay. And at one point... Uh, I was asked to be in charge of an interdisciplinary center. And these are people from lots of different computer science, education, you know, sociology. And uh, so I talked to a couple of faculty who had started giant centers at Stanford. And these were like bioengineering and uh, biophysics. How did they do this? And I asked them, what, what was the single most difficult thing about getting this interdisciplinary work off the ground? Can you guess? Uh, Math? Prima donnas? Prima donnas. (laughs) People with egos? I don't know. Not bad. (laughs) Language. Language. It turned out that the language in biology was so – there was so much language that the physicists – you know, it was was like – it was so tough to get into the game. And in the end, the way they solved it is they got sort of the physicists and the biologists to co-present so that the physicists could start to learn the language and the biologists could start to explain it. But I kind of like this because it captures this challenge in science where language, precise language, is the great enabler, but it's also the great barrier, right? And so you, you want to get in this area. So at one point I was, I was getting into neuroscience and I was just like, oh my God, I, I need like a thousand flashcards. It was sort of the barrier, but if I didn't have it, I couldn't be precise. So it's frustrating, right? Because you think, is it jargon? No, you're telling me it's not jargon because you need it, right? It's, and, and you have to be precise. But but if you can't translate it so that the normal human being understands it, boy, that makes it hard to teach. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, if you're an ornithologist... Uh, yeah. Do you want to define that, Dan, for the listeners, ornithologist? Well, Denise, I was about to. <laughs> okay. Uh, if, if you're ornithologist, I better be right. <laughs> <laughs> the truth comes out right if, now. No, if you're ornithologist, using the word bird is a little coarse, right? Okay, you, you true. Say, and probably using the word robin is too coarse because it's just doing uh, you know, an, a disservice to the precision of the science. But if you say, and I don't even know – a pretend scientific word for a bird here, but if you say the blah, 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 and no one knows what you're talking about, that's a problem too. There's got to be a middle ground. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're a teacher, yeah. Right. So, that, so if, I, if, if you're another ornithologist and I go blah, 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 you'll, I think I got that right. Uh, you, you'll, you'll, it'll be very productive. But if you're a student and you don't know that, that it's very difficult. Well, and I think, you know, part of... The, the reason why people shy away from science is because, boy, that looks hard. And that's like memorizing a medical textbook. I mean, it's known when you take AP biology, literally to, to learn that it's almost like being a first-year medical student, so, the, the old AP bio curriculum. Hmm. So, but, but that said, you know, STEM is all the rage, right? So let's define STEM here. STEM, the S, the T, the E, the M. The S is for science. The T is for technology. The E is for engineering, and the M is for math. And then if you're really hip these days, you say STEAM, and you add the A for art, 
right? And so this this is what, what what teachers are talking about. And I even heard a group of teachers tell me they were adding an H. I'm telling you, it was like steam. I'm not steam. making this up. Steam. And the H was humanities. And I thought, well, what the heck is left? Why, why Isn't don't that they just, everything? Why don't they just call it liberal arts? Why don't they just call it liberal arts? Exactly. So, so kind of the issue here is, uh, you know, we teach science in school. And, and sh- why should we do this? I mean, do we really need more scientists? Wouldn't it be good if society had more poets? Well, you- I think so, but we have someone here who can really answer that question for us. So we are very, very lucky to welcome Dr. Brian Brown, an associate professor here at the Graduate School of Education. He studies science education. Brian, welcome. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. And here's my question for you, leaping right off of what Dan said. Why do we need science? So, why, why teach it? So before you answer, we had someone here on literacy, and we gave her a multiple choice test. But yours is open answer. Why? <laughs> Congratulations to me. I'm very happy that Are I can good. answer it that way. You're lucky. So I think that answer, that question actually has been asked for hundreds of years. So when I talk to my graduate students, I talk to them about like the highest order thinking years ago. It was philosophers. We think about Socrates. We think we think about now who are our intellectual elite. And that assumption is flipped, but it was it was done intentionally. So I won't give you the history of the Committee of Ten, but there was an actual group of people who sat together to say, we need a world of people who think like scientists. This is late 1800s, early 1900s. And so uh, actually just a random bit of knowledge, school of thoughts, right? So there was a group of scientists and philosophers who got together to say, we want to teach science in particular ways. And that phrase actually comes from the origin. They were all coming from different perspectives. So school of thought is a part of this argument. But to be brief, here's, here's my I real like answer. I like that, Brian. Random like knowledge that. is all I'm ever good for, right? So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep going that direction. Uh-oh. <laughs> so so here, here's, here's a, my, my best attempt to answer that question. So, science enables us to answer the questions of what's happening with me, what's happening around me. And I, I, I argue with my science teachers, it's the easiest thing to teach because you're never teaching things in abstract. So if I want to know why am I sick today, why, why did I get a cold, science offers an answer. If, if I want to know why is this bird blue or why my sister does not look like me, even though she is my sister, science enables us to answer a simple question of what is happening in the world that I'm a part of. And some of it is abstract and some of it is very practical. And so that's the beauty of science. It gives us an answer to what's happening around me. So he's convinced me. I'm pretty convinced. But but it goes back to the language issue now, right? Well, Boy, wait, wait, there's wait, that. Wait, wait, oh, do you, are you not convinced? I don't know. You know, I, it, it's the rele- the personal relevance of science. Uh, I sort of like science because of the beauty of it. You know, it, it's more a humanities argument for science. It's like you see those those star pictures from the Hubble telescope, and it's just like whoa. And personal relevance, yeah, that I am finite and the world is much bigger than me. That, that's not relevance I want to hear. But okay. I, I do like the beauty, the symmetry, the elegance of science. Am, am I too abstract? And I think you're a poet. I think, Dan, you are a there, poet at heart. Uh, Clearly, yeah, so right? That's, that's what poetry is. But I, I, I don't like the, the distinction here, right? Uh, I, I, uh-huh. I truly believe – Right at the height of science is the same kind of imagination and creativity that goes into poetry, but you also have the precision. Um, and by the way, in poetry, there's a lot of precision. Yeah, as well. I, I would think so. A, a bad rhyme is a bad thing. A bad right? rhyme is a bad thing. So, so if we and speaking of poetry and language, right? I think that that's very important. The same reason why people are afraid of poetry. This is I'm just making this up, Brian, but go with me. Yeah. The same reason why people are afraid of poetry. 
and the language and it's too highfalutin and everything, I think is part of what you've been studying, Brian, about Absolutely. why people are afraid of science. Absolutely. Well, I think the stereotypes about who can be a scientist have done extreme detriment to, to science, um, to, to the science learner. The, the irony is when you go to the science class, the one thing you're not supposed to know is whatever science is being taught. So principally, we don't tap into the people's understanding of, of the world already. So, so let me I'll say that differently, is when we enter a science classroom, we're answering questions about the world we participate in. What teachers often fail to do is to recognize there's so much wisdom and insight in what students know. And what happens is we create this binary, this guess what's in my head. There's a famous scene in the movie Ferris Bueller where the history teacher asks a question and then expects the student to answer those questions. So right. when you when you do that Bueller, in Bueller, Bueller, it's painful, right? Totally painful. Anybody? 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 And you're just sitting there? It's awful. And you can relate to it because you've experienced it. And I think that's that's the, the pain and humor of, of that scene. In, in a science classroom, what happens is teachers will ask a question, let's say, about why do we get a cold? And the student will say, well, you know, maybe if you rub somebody's hands, you'll get bacteria on your hand, which is not the answer. But instead of saying we know what's right about that is there is a transfer of something, right? We think in these binary terms, there's a right and there's a wrong. And what happens is we don't see what students have. So my argument is we develop uh, complexity and intimidation on two levels. And the first is that we don't recognize what students know, the wisdom that they bring, and then the language sends such a symbol that we intimidate people. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are speaking with Brian Brown about the teaching of science and some of the barriers that kids feel, especially around the language um, and how it's taught. So you have done something uh, pretty cool to overcome some of these barriers. You have a camp that you do with middle school kids. Uh, can you tell a little bit about the camp and why, why you came up with that idea? Absolutely. So, so part of what my goal is as a researcher is to offer uh, actual solutions to the research problems. And so I thought I had a better way of teaching, uh, which we call a disaggregate instruction. But the problem is I can't go to a school district or a, a, a go to a teacher and say, you know, I want to teach half of your kids this way and they'll learn more. And the other half, I'll teach them worse. It's a really, it's really difficult to get access to schools when the premise is that I want to do some kind of classroom experiment. And so the thought was, well, what if we bring kids to us and it enables us to, to try our new teaching practices? And we've used it as kind of a mobile lab for the last uh, five years, actually six years. More importantly, what I realized in the interim was that young people, particularly kids in, in inner city communities, they don't have science camps as an option. So that as a paradigm does not exist. So what, what do you do in the summer? I go hang out with grandma. I go to my aunt's house. And so being able to come to some, some place, particularly a place like Stanford, and to be able to take on that identity as a, as a scientist for a week is really a transcendent experience for, for our, the young people we work with. That's awesome. And, and what kinds of things do you do, you do with them? So we, we keep it simple. It is 100% science brainwashing, which means <laughs> <laughs> you, will, you will have a great time. You put on a lab coat, you'll blow something up, and then we'll have you tell us a story. I mean, the big outcome for us is uh, exp explanation videos. So at the end of the day, every kid, whatever we do, we give them a camera, iPad, and say, well, tell us the story of what happened. Uh, in, in our eyes, science is just a story of things that happen, and, which is really what scientists do. They discover things and give them names. And so we invert that process. We, we tell the kids they're going to have a great time. We laugh. We joke. We engage in experiments. And at the end of the day, what they know is that they're going to explain it to somebody. So we sneak in learning through that, through that kind of activity. 
And what did you find after doing this? Because this was sort of your experiment, right? Did, did, did they learn better than what was happening in traditional classrooms? Yeah. So there's t- two studies that came out of this. The, the first is kind of a traditional study where we gave the kids two different types of instruction. Some kids were getting uh, science instruction that was language first. The others were getting uh, simple language first. And those studies were demonstrated that students who, who had access to simple language and then we gave them opportunities to explain, they learned better. So... So just a <clears throat> chlorophyll would be non-simple language. And so you would somehow get, use a word they know Correct. before you deliver the, the professional term for it. Absolutely. So chlorophyll, uh, we actually asked them, well, what is the thing in the plant? And they said, you know, that green thing, the green pouches. And so green pouches, which is literally the same thing, is, is the stand-in for chlorophyll. Because at the end of the day, I want to make sure they understand the process first and then label second. And so that study demonstrated that students learn better. And we did a similar study. They learn, they learn just to be clear, they mm-hmm. learn better when they sort of get the informal association and then you you deliver the language that helps them refine that and so forth. Absolutely. So yeah. the two conditions are one group gets simple language alone. We, we don't teach them the science language. The other group gets the science language all at once. And both groups, we say, then practice the language. So we, we have to create kind of a proximal normative group. And long story short is that we were able to, to in, improve student learning. The second study was then we wanted to measure if there was any stress or anxiety or the reduction of working memory capacity. So uh, and I, I like to tell the story this way. When you're trying to park your car in a really tight space and you're double parking, we turn the radio down and, and enable us to focus a little bit. So... It's a cognitive capacity thing. It's it's we're adding distractors, and so what we did was we gave the one group of kids complex language, one group of kids simple language, and then we gave them these stress measures that we borrowed from psychology. And what we found is when they're taught with simple language, uh, they were much quicker, uh, all statistically significant, in being able to identify the patterns. And so it, it demonstrated that there was reduced cognitive load uh, when you're using and teaching with science language. And so what I tell teachers is. Why wouldn't we want to make it easier for kids to understand? But you're still going to get to the chlorophyll part, right? Because the parents will be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want this to be dumbed down. Absolutely. You know, that's the ironic first answer I get in any professional development. Do you mean dumb it down? And I I, I make the simple argument. I'm saying the exact opposite. What I'm really asking you to do is to make sure they understand the idea first and then you give them a lot of opportunities to practice the language because they will then understand the language that they're using. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we were speaking with Brian Brown about the teaching of science and particularly how you give students the language of science. Don't start out with the hard stuff is what I'm hearing. I'm not hearing that. Okay. What are you hearing, Dan? I'm, 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 I'm hearing concepts precede language. Yeah, but don't, don't say, okay, we're going to memorize chlorophyll. You're going to let them figure out the little green packet and and come up with their own explanation. I agree with that. First, I agree with that. Okay. I, 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 there's probably a term for what I just did for you. And what did, <laughs> did you, I, I what did you just was, do? Contradict? Pre, <laughs> <laughs> I think the presuppose. Presuppose. <laughs> All right. So so Brian, at some point though, you do have to learn the vocabulary. Yes. Absolutely. We can't just only live in the world of simple language. Absolutely. And the, the argument is, if you teach with the vocabulary first, you're probably preventing the person from learning the vocabulary. So you, I, you need a translation device, and that translation device is the language that they already know. Right. So here, here's a 
something of an analog on the cognitive capacity. I think I, and this is for Denise first. Okay. Uh, if I'm trying to teach chlorophyll, I sort of have to black box it. I can't, I, if it's too complex, if I go chlorophyll down to uh, the chemical processes, down to the Krebs cycle. So it's sort of like, yeah, chlorophyll converts sunlight into energy, which is kind of a, you know, it's mystical, right? Yeah. And, and so you, you always have to make this decision about how you draw the black box. Where, where do you say this is enough, enough depth for now? Because if I go further, it'll be too complicated, too much language. How do you do that in curriculum design? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we should ask Brian, but I'll give it a, I'll give it a, a really quick stab. Um, I think what you have to decide is developmentally, right, as a teacher, what is going to get them hooked without turning them off? What's, what's enough to be true to what you need um, without turning them off? Brian, what do you think? I think that the information that they need to understand that it already exists in their community in, in, the, in the 80s, um, uh, Shirley Bryce, Bryce, Bryce Heath's work on uh, Ways with Words documented that if we just teach what's in their community, there's there's where the language resource is. So what is how does grandma talk about plants and the chlorophyll? What words does she use? And so she doesn't are, say chlorophyll. See, I, I almost guarantee you that, that <laughs> not only does she not say chlorophyll, that the scientists who came up with the word chlorophyll never said the word chlorophyll until there was a deep understanding of what chlorophyll was. And so we teach in the inverse process in which we actually learned it. So if we just go backwards, use language that people understand, I think we get a better understanding overall. So, so I teach statistics, and there is this little thing called N minus 1. And it's very, very hard to explain. And the question is, should I explain it or not? And one answer is, and this is going to be a little snarky, but I'm desperate to find the answer. One answer is I should use my intuitions about their development to decide whether they could understand it. The other answer is I should look to their history and see are there experiences that I could connect N minus one to. Is this, is this, this is, and I can't do either. Well, This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we will have more about how to help Dan teach N-1. Because it is all about me. Because it's all about Dan. With our guest, Brian Brown, Associate Professor of Science Education at Stanford, next up on SiriusXM Insight 121. Students focus on what they were told, not paying attention to the situation. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. So they're not going to see anything new because they're so busy trying to copy what you told them. From the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Brian Brown, Associate Professor of Science Ed at Stanford here. And Dan asked a, a question about N-1 right before right. the so, break. Uh, so I, I would like to move on, but uh, it, it was a snotty question. So <laughs> I, I want to give Brian a chance to give a, give a hopefully non-snotty answer. But it, it, the question was, I actually have this difficult problem about whether to teach this concept, which is very difficult. And I, it's hard to make the decision whether to spend the time to go after it or not, right? And, and so sort of looking in their everyday lives doesn't help me. And sort of doing my intuitions about are they ready for it? I'm not quite sure they're ready for it if I spend, you know, 10 weeks on it. So, so you, I think you have a sort of response to why my problem is not the problem of teaching science. A- absolutely. It's one of my favorite things about teaching science is science is the story of real things that are happening in people's lives. And if, if we as educators do the work of finding out where those real things are, then we have a powerful resource. I, I found out recently, this blew, blew my mind, 
that the reason why curly hair curls, or if you curl your hair intentionally, is because of hydrogen bonding, right? So if if it if it rains or if there's a lot of humidity, water is polar. You're breaking those bonds, right? So wow. Exactly. Wow. Right. So who, who who doesn't want to learn about curly hair and, and, and the concepts of chemistry? And so in that way, I think science has a huge benefit of our most disciplines in that it tells the story of real things. We just need to figure out how to make that connection, which is which is difficult, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Very good. So uh, we talked a little about language, uh, that it's uh, it can be a barrier and an enabler. Um Technology could be the same thing. You know, technology, if, if you're a scientist, you use technology uh, pretty much. Everybody now, the computer, everybody uses it. And so it's a great enabler, except it can also be a barrier. So what, what's happening now in sort of the educational space in technology, particularly in your work? So we're we're I think I finally moved to Silicon Valley and <laughs> congratulations. Uh, thank you. It's uh, it's been an interesting couple of years, but we we were looking at some of the resources. So for example, digital books. And so what interactive digital books offer is that it's more than text. There's video. There are interactive pieces. There's assessments built in. And and given our interest in an interactive book, what you can do is you can. Put whoever, any, any face, any sound, any image can serve as instructor. So if the, if children are worried about or have anxiety about uh, the complexity or who, or can I be a scientist? I can have a video of another child teaching a child about them about a scientific concept. We actually did a project this year where we did cultural matching or identity matching. So if the, if the young person was a young woman who wore hijab, then we had a person who was teaching them who was a young person with her, who was wearing, also wearing a hijab, or if the person spoke with a thick accent, we did identity matching. And so the, the idea here was that in these digital spaces is you can change both the message and the medium in ways that you, we've never been able to do. That's really interesting. Yeah. That is, that's something you couldn't do before. Yeah. That's really interesting. And what did you find out? We found out that the students liked it. Right? Ah. But not uniformly. Here's something that we, we're trying to make sense of. The, the group of students who really were most... Uh, attracted to this in this version of instruction were uh, Pacific Islanders. And so we were curious about why, why that might be. So it made us think about media studies as how often is the movie starring uh, someone of, of a Pacific Island background or the television program. And so for this particular group, uh, our assumption is that not being able to see yourselves in media and then all of a sudden being able to be taught by someone that looked like you and, and the music was reflective of your culture really has some kind of impact on, on them as a community. Wow. That's super fascinating. That is. I, I, I was just thinking, who, whom would I like to teach me in that? How would you, who, who, who would you respond best to, right? Yeah, that's probably the better question. Yeah. Who, who would I respond best to? Not who would you to? want, Pro- right? Probably, you know, the really scolding teacher with a ruler. You know, yeah, Dan, you're a weirdo. Okay, <laughs> that's all we have to say about that. No, that's really cool. And then I think you were also saying you did you're doing something with virtual reality. Yeah. So we we are also experimenting with how virtual reality can be a benefit, particularly to urban schools. And so the, the thought was, one of the benefits of virtual reality is, is scale. So yeah, we've been. It took me a long time to come up with this. I'm going to share this with you. Okay. Uh, micro, I'm meso, and macro. All right. And so micro being, I can literally put on goggles and be inside of a phenomenon. So you can tell me about atomic structure, or I can be in an atom. And so 
Uh, there's no other way to do that. That micro benefit is, is huge. And, and then on a macro level, I can go to space. I can literally be in space and, and talk about things like climate change or talk about ecosystems from a, a scale that's distant. And, and then the third is, of course, meso, is I can take you out of your community. You can be in uh, a rainforest and, and see it. And so uh, with our virtual reality project, we, we were looking at ways to use this software, both for cognitive and cultural benefit, right? So taking students to different places and then exploring what they felt about being able to, to move across these scales. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We're speaking with Brian Brown about the use of technology in the teaching of science. And I've got to think that that's getting kids really excited. So if if I'm a mom and I have a kid who who seems to be interested in science, what would your advice be for that person? And the flip is also true. What if you're a parent and you've got a kid who's like, I hate science. It's the worst. I don't like it. What would you do for both those cases? So... The, I'll start with the more difficult case. If I have a child who, who and I'm going to use this word, claims to not like science because I believe everyone loves it. Okay. Um, I'm biased, right? <laughs> so what is it that they like? If if what they like is comic books, then the question is, where where is the science in the comic books? I, I learned more, more bad genetics from growing up reading comic books than anything else. And I ended up uh, getting a minor in genetics as an undergrad, but it really was rooted in and what I learned from from uh, genetics. But there are so many different um, comic books, rather. There are so many different means of engaging in science. So the easiest thing to do is science museums, informal science settings, and then alternative programs. And so there's a lot of online resources um, and experiments that you can do at home. And I think there's a there's a growing interest in science. Just for example, I have my as an outcome for our science teachers, we ask them to record these these one-minute videos that we call 20-second stories. So one of the videos we have about hydrogen bonding, which is an abstract idea, has hundreds of thousands of views. So it's really showing me that that people are, are actually looking for information about science in digital space. And so I would, I would tell parents, actually sit down with the child and, and let's talk about what interests you and let's go look about what 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 is what can we find online information like that and let's let's go out and do some science. That's awesome. And the, and and can you just look up anything and there'll be probably videos on it and Yes. Is it that it's that pervasive? Yeah, we were doing a unit on like tops, momentum, what do you mean, tops? spinning tops oh. and momentum and it was it was with a museum that sort of had a makerspace. Absolutely. We needed to go find videos. There are videos up Everything. Of everything. Yeah, of tops of wobbling, of fat tops falling. It's just, it's amazing. That's huge. Yeah. That's huge. Okay, now the kid who naturally loves science, almost to the point where it's driving you crazy because they're blowing things up in your kitchen. Awesome. What do you do? Awesome. That that is the that <laughs> is low hanging fruit. That, <laughs> I would I would I would say let's switch to biology, so we're not actually setting <laughs> things on fire. Maybe some physics, but there there are so many projects online, do it yourself projects, uh, websites where you can actually have things sent to you. We actually literally sign up for a club where you can do science projects at home. Uh, and, and what I do in my household is we, we've we joined an organization, a, sci- a Green Scholar Science Program, where there's a once-a-month project that my kids do. They do science fairs every year, and they they, they get a chance to feed their, their own love. But we do projects every year. So my, this past year, my son built an electric scooter, and we spent time literally at home doing projects on our own. I'm, I'm trying to work on a portable air conditioning with my daughter, but my uh, science knowledge is not deep enough to pull this off, but we'll keep trying. It sounds like there's a video, though, that you could just go online and and 
teach both of you how to do it. Absolutely. It costs too much, though. So i got to stay within my uh, budget. <laughs> stay budget within wise. the budget. So thank you, Brian. This has been such a fascinating show. It makes me um, renew my faith that uh, there will be scientists out there, not just uh, speaking jargon, but who really understand what's going on well, and want, can see themselves. Well, we want science poets. We want science poets. We want science. And we, we want, want people. And we, we want, want Poet scientists as well. We want renaissance. We, we want it all. We want it all. All right. Thank you for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We're on the campus of Stanford University and on Sirius XM Insight 121.